Hear, for this is the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's that uh, old saying that says, you can't satisfy everyone. Well, for Christians, you are going to make decisions in life based on your convictions or say something that is truthful that will upset someone. Jesus knew this all too well in his ministry. Now, there are major differences between Jesus and us. The first is the most obvious we're sinners. And Jesus is the perfect and sinless Son of God. So every word he said was perfect and complete. But when it comes to us, people should have a list of reasons why they should be dissatisfied with us. Because we've all said and done things that were offensive or wrong and unjustifiable. Because by nature we are Sinners in every area of life. But Jesus was perfect. And his teaching was perfect. Here in our text it reveals to us that there are those. Who can be classified as worse than being a sinner. You're asking yourself well what is worse than being a sinner? Well. What's worse than being a sinner is a sinner who doesn't believe he's a sinner. Jesus runs into a group of men like this. They hold to positions of authority. And one of the main problems with this group is their lack of understanding 
about how someone is saved and placed in God's favor. And that lack of understanding comes from a cold heart toward other people, which comes from a lack of understanding who they truly are in light of who God is. They did not know themselves. But Jesus makes clear the way of salvation to those who deserve it less. We see here here his call to sinners. We see a feast for sinners. And a new way for sinners. First, God calls sinners by grace alone. That That is how he calls any sinner. It is by grace. And know this. Know this about yourself. You are a sinner. You are a sinner who only deserves God's unending and eternal wrath. Because sin is a transgression of God's law and His holiness. And this world is not about us. It is at the end of the day about God. Knowing that you are a sinner is the most important fact that you need to know about yourself. There's all this talk these days about identity. And knowing your identity. There's an identity crisis, especially among young people. But the first thing that young people need to know is, is that you are a sinner. And that you have transgressed the law of God. That is the first thing you need to know. Before what the world is trying to tell you what you are, you need to know first that you have sinned against God and that you are a sinner. Everything that we have done in our lives, whether good or bad, that is in our own observations, only deserves God's wrath as a response. And a lot of people talk about hell. And when, when you talk about hell, most people say, well, that is unfair. Hell is unfair. But we forget that hell is really about God and His holiness. And it is a just response from Him to all of us. Nobody deserves heaven. Nobody we must remember first that we have sinned against God. And oftentimes we sin without a care in the world, without a thought in the world about God. No one deserves a gold medal from God. But also, something that we learn about God over and over again in the scriptures, that God is gracious and merciful. And by His grace, grace is unmerited favor, meaning you don't deserve any of it. By grace, He calls sinners to Himself. And the one person, the only person that He uses to call sinners to Himself is through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has used other men throughout history. We think of prophets, priests, kings, evangelists, apostles. He uses us, the church. But the task of redemption is always given to the Son. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here in our text. 
He is calling sinners to Himself to follow Him. And here is an account of Jesus calling to Himself His fifth disciple in our letter. Jesus went out again beside the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, while He was still in Capernaum. And all the crowd was coming to Him. And He was teaching them. Then He passes by a tax collector named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, Levi is another name for the apostle we know as Matthew, who authored the letter of the same name. And he was found in a tax booth. Now the booth was set up in a perfect location as Capernaum was known for its fishing industry. And it lies at the center of a trading route. So he would be tex- uh, taking taxes from uh, those fishermen who were fishing along the sea, and he would be collecting taxes from those who were coming from uh, Syria to Egypt, Syria being in the north and Egypt being in the south. But unfortunately, there was a stigma against tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered traitors, and they were a disgrace, especially if they were Jews. Why? Well, because the tax collector worked for the government of their day. Who was the government? It was Herod, who worked for Caesar. And he oppressed the Jews with high and unjust taxes. So, in other words, the the tax collector represented the oppressor. And he assisted him in his oppressing. Not only that, but most tax collectors were involved in the corruption that was going on at the time as well, such as extortion. So the Jewish leaders would have considered tax collectors as as the worst of sinners. An equivalent today would be someone who worked for, let's say, a politician, whom you may know as being corrupt and oppressive. I know we can think of a few. And by this person working for this politician, you know he or she is assisting in his corruption. So ask yourself, would you invite this person over for dinner? Or would you have, well, you would have him over for dinner, but would you go to his house for dinner? (laughs) Self-righteousness at its best. So the Jewish tax collector would be required to give up his Jewish identity. He would withdraw his membership from the synagogue. And he would be totally cut off from his Jewish family. They were in the eyes of the Jewish leaders to be cut off from God and his people. Much like a leper. And much like a leper. If you were to associate with a tax collector. You would be considered unclean. Now the bad news for Levi was that he was a Jew. And he was also a tax collector. Then on this remarkable day, his Savior passes by and comes to him. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose, left his post, and followed him. Now this is an example of one who is called to leave everything for Jesus because 
He may have been, been involved in some true corruption. But Jesus, by his grace, calls him. Now this would have been a scandalous call in those days. You can almost hear the people in disgust. This man doesn't deserve to be called. Look at how he has sided with the enemy. He is the reason why we are suffering and why we are poor. He has caused my father or my husband or uh, to lose his business. He has caused my wife and my kids to go to bed hungry. Jesus, you are uh, the Messiah of Israel. You ought to give him what what he deserves. You're a miracle worker. You healed the leper. Why not Strike him dead. He should be hung on a cross and executed. Can you think of some corrupt individuals that may be the cause of the same kinds of suffering today? Whether right here in this country or in others? How would you respond if you saw Jesus calling them to himself? No, nah, it couldn't happen. Not, not for that guy. Remember, they wanted a worldly savior who will save them from everyone else except for themselves. So when they see him call a traitor to himself, they would have been shocked. Is he now promoting his taxes? But what they miss and what we miss is that it doesn't matter. Where you have been or what you have done. Whatever your occupation is. Whether it makes you an actual traitor. Or if it is that people just view view you that way unjustly. Whether your occupation involves sin of some kind. Jesus can call you out of it. By his grace. And by his power. He is able. He has the power, the authority and the grace to do so. You are never too far off for forgiveness. But you must respond to his call and follow him. Secondly, to make matters worse for Jesus, he continues to hang out with sinners. He parties with them. We see Levi is so excited that he prepares a feast. He invites a large group of people to feast with Jesus at his home. And it wasn't just a dinner. The phrase to recline at table in those days described a posture of feasting. It was another way of saying this is a party. A party that consisted of eating and drinking and enjoying conversations with Jesus. And you can only imagine what kind of conversations they were. I'm sure it involved the people that were there. So who was invited to this party? It says that there were many tax collectors and sinners. So in other words, this means that there were many non-Jews and Jews alike who were actual sinners at this party. See, tax collectors and sinners are part of the same group in the eyes of some. They were sinners. And they were not accepted by the holy people of God. 
But these were the type of people, and I would add, these, these were the only type of people that followed Jesus. Even today. These are the only type of people there are in this world. But the scribes didn't see that. Because to them, there are another type of people. And they are the Pharisees. The scribes belonged to this group. The Pharisees were known as the faithful ones. Those who were set apart. And they were devoted to the law in every way. Life for them was a life of radical separation, similar to a monk. They believed this way to be the only way of salvation and how you maintain holiness. So for them, the law was to be applied to every situation. They concluded that there are actually not 10, but 613 commandments once the law of God was faithfully applied to every situation in life. In other words, they came up with a handbook of do's and don'ts. They were Puritans who drank too much coffee. They were a little hyped up. They were known for tithing everything, including their food, mint, dill, and cumin. So they made up rules about who they were allowed to eat with, and out of fear that the host didn't tithe their food and spices, and so they would be cursed for it. And they believed that this was actually required by the law of God. And out of actual concern for Jesus and his spiritual state, because he was doing something they would never do. It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Just like a doctor or a physician, he not only deals with preventative care, but he is also responsible for treating the sick. Imagine going to your doctor with an ailment, and he turns to you and says, Oh, I only deal with those who are healthy, and those who take care of themselves. The scary thing, this is what is going on in many doctors' offices today. But I hope you would ask him, what is the point of your position? And you can stop taking my money now, by the way. Now, we wouldn't say this to Jesus because he is the holy and great physician. And he tells us what he came here for. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. Because the righteous in this text were not really righteous. They were self-deceived. And they thought they were righteous and they didn't need a physician when really they were the sickest. The Pharisees didn't view themselves as sinners and they believed that staying away from other sinners is what saved them and what made them holy. This way of thinking becomes a problem in the church, doesn't it? 
Yes, we are called to be saints and holy and set apart. But at the same time, we are actually still sinners among other sinners in this world. As Martin Luther says, we are saints and sinners at the same time. And avoiding contact with unbelievers does not make us holy. The point Jesus was making was that there is none righteous. And if you claim to be holy, the zeal that comes from godliness goes out. It goes out and reaches out to others. The zeal that we claim to have seeks to make others who are not children of God become children of God. And show them His way. The holiness of the Pharisees was only found in criticism. And they kept their so-called faith to themselves. They didn't care for anyone else but themselves. And notice, this isn't the way of a faithful God, is it? It wasn't the way of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a monk. The Pharisees were not reflecting their God. God throughout human history has been chasing down sinners and making them his children. Jesus is saying he came to call the worst of sinners and turn them into saints. That was his mission. And that is still the church's mission today. Because if you think you are righteous without Jesus, you are self-deceived. You are self-deceived. If you think you can stand on the judgment day in front of God Almighty, who is holy beyond our comprehension, beyond what we could ever imagine. If you think you can stand before God, the God who defines what is good, not what we define as good, the God who defines what is good, on a whole other level than what we define as good. If you think you can stand on that day and think he's going to say, oh, I'll give him a pass. He's done some pretty good things in his life. We are self-deceived. We are self-deceived. Because what we count as decent, more times than not, is an offense to God. It's an offense to God. And our self-righteousness is a slap to His face. There are none righteous, not even one. And everyone that Jesus calls to Himself is a sinner in need of grace. Because the only thing anyone deserves from God is His wrath. That is it. That is it. But we must be careful here. We must be careful here. Because a misapplication of this this text can go in a different direction. In the wrong direction. There are always two ditches on the side of the road, isn't it? We are confronted here with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And they don't see themselves as sinners. and, And that is a problem. But we can go in the complete opposite direction that we should go in. I've heard this misapplied before as to imply, well now, 
you know, since Jesus eats with sinners, I can just go and live it up. I can live my life any way that I please. I'm going to party and get drunk with my non-Christian friends, experiment with drugs and illicit relationship, because hey, Jesus ate with sinners. And so do I. Believe it or not, this way of thinking is common, especially among younger people today. But that is not the point that Jesus was making at all. It has been misapplied to say that believers and unbelievers' lives are to look similar. But when Jesus ate with sinners, he ate with sinners because there was a reason and a purpose why he ate with sinners. He wasn't just enjoying their company, I'm sure he did. But he also came to call them to himself. That is why when Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because he came as a physician to grant them a cure to their illness, which is sin. He did not come to leave them there. In their sin. He ate with sinners so that he can make them holy and saints, so that they can be the real faithful ones, not the self righteous. That was the point of this dinner party. He was calling them so they could be saved and their lives from here on would look totally different and totally transformed. You hear a lot of talk of churches today being all welcoming and come as you are churches. Which is true. We should be. We are. We ought to be a church that is all welcoming and a come as you are church. But that's not the point that they're trying to make. What they're saying, by saying all welcoming and putting up a a specific flag, we, we probably know what kind of flag that is, very colorful. They're putting that out there because they're trying to say, well, this church, we're not going to talk about sin anymore. We're not going to preach about sin. We're not going to say we're sinful. We're no, you, you notice, we're no longer sinful. We're broken. That, that's been, that, that, that replaces being sinful. We're broken. Oh yeah, we are broken. All of us are broken because we're sinful. We're broken more times than not. Not every time. But more times than not, we're broken because we are sinful. And these churches, they want to make everyone feel comfortable in their sin and never preach the holiness of God and what we deserve in light of that. So they're not putting God first. They're putting people first. And these are churches where no one is called to repent and no one seeks repentance. My friends, that is not a church. 
That is not a church. Might be a social club, but it's not a church. You think of Revelation. When Jesus is calling his churches to repent, and if they don't repent, he's going to snatch the lampstand away from them. What does that mean? They no longer are a church anymore. So here, Jesus is not trying to affirm any sinner in their sin. That's not what he is trying to do. That would go against his holy nature. And remember one thing. Him eating with sinners, he is eating with his own enemies. These are his enemies he's eating with. Because they've all sinned against him primarily. So we don't need affirming churches that will affirm our sin, who do not call us to repent. It's as if they they don't read 1 Corinthians. You read through 1 Corinthians, you can't sit and say that sin is okay. But at the same time, when we read 2 Corinthians, once a sinner repents, we are to receive them in the number. Because Jesus calls us out of the manure of sin and washes us clean by his blood and his spirit. So Jesus eating with sinners is not an excuse for sin. We can't use that for whatever lifestyle we want. Paul even said, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But Jesus calls you so that he can transform you truly from the inside out. And your life in and with Jesus is not going to be like the Pharisees and their self-righteousness due to man-made laws and traditions. And on the flip side, your life is also not going to be marked by scandalous sin. In light of this text, we often ask ourselves, in light of Jesus' call, should we have worldly and unbelieving Friends, of course we should. Should we eat with unbelievers? Of course. Should we go to their parties when they invite us? With discretion and wisdom? Yes. But always always remember who you serve first. Remember the mission. It is the same mission for us today, to call sinners to Jesus. If there's an opportunity, share the gospel of Christ or share his compassion and mercy for sinners. And the hope is that you do not become part of the world in the process, but that they would respond to the call of Jesus, become part of the church and be saved. Thirdly, we see something new happening here. We're not sure whether or not all of this occurs on the same day or at the same place. But the subject remains the same. Here we have some that were feasting and some that were fasting. You have disciples of Jesus eating and drinking, enjoying the presence of Jesus. Then you, are, you, you have John's disciples and 
the Pharisees who were fasting. So people approached Jesus and asked, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now John's disciples may have been fasting because their leader was just thrown in prison, and they were in a time of mourning, grieving and fasting often went together. But the problem was that the Pharisees fasted for other reasons. It was for a showcase of piety. This is why Jesus warned about making a show of fasting to be seen by others and making your face look gloomy. Fasting was personal and to be done in secret. And the other thing is, it is not commanded. It is not commanded. So another problem is that the Pharisees were adding to the law. They were what we call legalists. A legalist is someone who believes that he or she will be saved on judgment day by law keeping and not by Jesus. It is one who believes that on judgment day he will enter heaven because he kept the law. Now all religions on this planet are made up of legalists except for the one true religion, Christianity. In every other religion, there are laws and rules in order to attain a higher spiritual life. So there are certain practices, I don't know if it's yoga or some kind of meditation, that you're trying to do to attain a higher spiritual life. But Christianity says no. You can't do anything in yourself to attain spiritual life Period. There are no practices, no mantras, no seances, no spiritual meditation that you do that can attain spiritual life by your works. It is Jesus who calls you. It is Jesus who saves you. And it is His Holy Spirit that He gives to you. And he enables you to obey the law as you are made more and more into his image. So in other words, nothing in this world that you can do to attain salvation. There's nothing. You can't do anything in your power because you have none. He enables the Christian to keep the law. And this remains imperfect in this life, doesn't it? This remains imperfect. But you are not saved because you kept the law. We obey the law because we have been saved. We now love God and we love His law because He is the one who has turned us to do so. Also, legalism is not just trying to... to, Uh, be saved by the law, but it is also adding to the law of God. When I say adding, I mean anything that is not clearly taught in the law or is of necessary consequence of the law. Like Jesus taught that murder is not just physically killing someone, but it is also being angry towards someone unjustly. You're just as guilty of murder. 
and you're just as liable to hell. Jesus wasn't adding to the law. He was giving the true meaning of the law. But you see, the Pharisees added to the law. And the legalist usually thinks that adding to God's law elevates the law to a higher standard. But it doesn't. It does the opposite. It brings the law of God down to human standards. It takes away from the true meaning and purpose behind God's law. Over the years, over the centuries, the church has given certain recommendations for Christian life, such as fasting. But a recommendation is totally different than a command. The Pharisees commanded that their followers fast twice a week. While in the Bible, there is only one commandment to fast one day a year. And that is the Day of Atonement. And guess who picks up on this? Jesus picks up on this. Notice carefully. Jesus responds as to why his disciples are not fasting. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Notice that he is referring to the Old Testament way of speaking about God. As God is the bridegroom of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. And it speaks of a great day when there will be a wedding feast for the bridegroom and his bride. So Jesus is referring to himself once again that he is God. It's getting repetitive here. No one can deny it at this point. The bridegroom of true Israel is him. And the answer to this rhetorical question is no. This is the wrong time. For his disciples to fast. Because they are with the bridegroom. And in Israel they they know how to party. Weddings tend to last not just one whole night. They tend to last a whole week. So they were in a time of feasting. And he says as long as they have the bridegroom with them. They cannot fast. Because it is a feast right now. Enjoy it. What are you doing? Can't you see? God has come. You should be celebrating. But what do the Pharisees do? Jesus revealed their blindness because he just told them who he is and why they were fasting. Later they will conclude that he was just a lawbreaker. Rather than confess my Lord and my God. He was just a lawbreaker. But he tells them, they will fast one day. Remember the one day that God commands Israel to fast? The day of atonement that comes once a year, not twice a week? What was that day all about? Well, Jesus tells them, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast in that day. That one day. What day is that? 
the day he is taken away to be crucified and killed on a cross for sinners. The true day of atonement. That is when they'll fast. That is the day where they'll mourn. That day is when Jesus will pave a new way for sinners. A one-time offering for sinners to be saved. That's the day when the temple worship, its sacrifices and fasting will be done away with. Because the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate day of fasting has come. So he compares the old way with the new way. When he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old. And the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. He is saying if you turn back to the old way, there is no salvation. And you will be destroyed like the old garment and the old wineskins. Now he's not contrasting the old way of salvation and the new way of salvation. Salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. What is different and new is the fact that the Messiah is here. And you no longer have to fast and mourn over the state of Israel because the king and the kingdom has come. There is the old order of things with sin and death and now you have the new order of things with the new creation that is coming. And this is where we will have sinless bodies in a new environment. Not only that, but he wanted to liberate them from the legalistic and man-made traditions of the Pharisees and grant the new way of freedom in him. The Pharisees continually tried to constrain Jesus and make him fit in the old way. They try to keep the people from following Jesus. But he says... If you follow them, you will be destroyed. If you follow the world and their legalistic practices, you will be destroyed. Because there's a man-made way of salvation that is no way of salvation. And there's God's way of salvation. We are either saved by God's way, by grace, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ, or we will be destroyed by our own legalism. He has freed us from the ceremonial laws of the old and the regulations that were multiplied on top of them. So the question we must ask ourselves of this text, have I responded to Jesus and His call? Or am I deceived into a way that I made up all by myself? A way of life that I think will save me. That will put me in the right with God. That is the most important question you can ask yourself in this life. 
If it is Jesus that you have responded to. And if it is, then you can expect a wedding feast on that faithful day when you will see your bridegroom. Amen.